Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Pastored by Reverend Gary Dereshinsky, New Hope Chapel is located in Arnold, Maryland. You can find us on the web at www.newhopechapel.org. Now here's Pastor Gary Dereshinsky with today's message. Now, so if you have your Bibles, you can open to the book of Ruth. Before we actually look at the book of Ruth, let me sort of put it in uh, a, a broader context. You know, the events of the book of Ruth take place during the period of the judges. As it opens up, it was in the days of the judging of the judges and then tells us of the family of Naomi and Elimelech, Machlon and Kilion and how there is a famine in the land. And that because of that famine, they leave the land of Israel, head to Moab, one of their enemies, and spend 10 years there before God begins to act in a certain way to restore this family back to the land of Israel. It's never a good thing in the Old Testament to leave the land of Israel under any circumstances because this is God's promised land and this is where he brings the people. And so you read over and over challenges to the people that might lead them to consider leaving the land and that's never a good thing to do. But the period of the judges has got to be one of the worst moments in Israel's history. The book of Judges is a wonderful book to read, but it is utterly depressing and it is sad. That book records nothing but bad news in the land of Israel. The first 17 or so chapters uh, introduce us to 13 different judges. And as those 13 judges are introduced to us seven times, the cycle of despair is repeated over and over and over and over again. Israel is in their land. They're restored into their land. And then they fall prey to the sin of worshiping the god Baal. And as they sin against the Lord and worshiping Baal, then God sends an oppressive enemy. It could be the Philistines. It could be the Amalekites. It could be the Midianites. It could be the Canaanites. It could be any one of these nations. And now Israel is under oppression. And that oppression sometimes lasts for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And then they cry out to God. And they say, Lord, deliver us. And God in his mercy and grace sends a judge. And when they send a judge, we're not to think of somebody in a black robe that sits behind a desk with a gavel in his hand and adjudicates trials. No, the judges were ones that meted out God's judgment on the enemies of Israel. And so each one of these warriors is brought on the scene of Israel's history to deliver them, and God delivers them, and they are restored to their land. Seven times you read of this. Israel is in their land. Israel sins. Israel is oppressed. Israel cries out. Israel is sent to deliver. Israel is restored. Israel sins. Just this cycle, seven times, and 13 judges. And the final judge, Samson, to which most time and space is attributed, and is sort of the climax of it all, is to tell you just how bad things were. Because here was a man that had it all. Here was an individual that had such talent and potential. He was a man of God. He took the Nazarite vow, you remember, a voluntary vow of dedication. That's what Nazarite means, dedication and devotion to God. And he didn't just take it for a limited period of time, as the book of Numbers prescribes. He took that vow for a lifetime. He wanted to serve God his entire life. And yet with all of the potential and of all the judges, his birth alone is announced by the angel of the Lord. 
and the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Imagine that, announcing the birth of this man, just as the angel Gabriel announced the birth of Christ, announces the birth of Samson. He had so much potential, so much given to him, and yet squandered it all, so that at the end of his life, those words that to me are so depressing, he killed more Philistines at his death than in his life. It's like saying his death had more meaning and significance than his entire life. That's not how you want to leave this world. You don't want anyone to have on your, on your tombstone, his death was more significant than his 40 years or his 70 years or whatever it is. You want to know he lived a full 80-year life. But no, that wasn't Samson's lot. And that's what the, why it ends with Samson, so that we would be... Um, confronted by this challenge. We have so much and yet can be squandered. Israel had so much and yet it could be squandered. In the last four chapters of the book of of Judges is nothing but infighting among the tribes of Israel. Nothing but civil conflict, which will escalate after the death of Solomon when the nation divides and you have the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and there's constant warfare among Israel again. It is a very depressing time in Israel's history. But there is a glimmer of hope, and that glimmer of hope is found in the book of Ruth. Imagine this. In the book of Ruth now we read, in the days of the judges, there is a glimmer of hope. This is a wonderful book. It's a good news book. It's a delightful book. It's a hopeful book, unlike what is going on in the land of Israel. And of all things, you know, the book of Judges, the very opening passage and the very closing passage of the book of Judges has this phrase, Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. And by doing what was right in their own eyes, they did not experience the fullness of God's grace and mercy. But when you get to the book of Ruth, we meet two people who do that which is right in God's eyes. Ruth, a Moabitess of all, not an Israelite, but a Moabitess does what's right in God's eyes in loving Naomi and staying with her. And you have a Boaz who does right what's in God's eyes and is faithful to this Moabitess. So you've got all this bad news and it's contrasted with all this wonderful splendor and good news that you find in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is really a book about love and how love is demonstrated by an unexpected individual, a Moabitess daughter-in-law to Naomi. And you know the story, so let's kind of review it together. If you look in chapter 1, you'll find the story opens up where there's a famine. The famine creates great hardship for the Israelites and particularly for this family of Elimelech and Naomi. And they decide we cannot no longer make it here in Bethlehem. There's a famine. We cannot harvest our crops here. We need to go somewhere where there's going to be uh, a fertile field. So they head out of Bethlehem. They go east and they go into the land, southeast into the land of Moab. They're there 10 years And worse things befall this family. Elimelech, the husband, dies. Machlon and Kilion, who married two Moabitist women, Ruth and Orpah, they also die. And now you've got three women left on their own. In the ancient world, that is an utter tragedy. Women without a husband to care for them is either reduced to, uh, it will be reduced to poverty and begging or prostitution. Those were their only options. And so here these three women are wondering what is the rest of our life going to consist of. 
Naomi does not want these young girls to be left in such an unfortunate state. And so she says, look, I release you from any commitments you may have had toward me. And you can go back to your own land, back to your own country, back to your own people. She even says, to your own gods and find a man who will take care of you. Both of them at first refuse. They say, no, no, we're not going to do this. But Naomi continues to urge them. And Orpah then kisses Naomi goodbye and says, okay, I'm going to go back. But, but Ruth, she refuses. You know, Orpah doesn't do a bad thing. She just doesn't do the best thing. And the writer makes that clear because he says, Orpah kisses Naomi and goes back. But then he uses this word, but. You know, he could have said, and Ruth stayed. But he doesn't. He says, but Ruth stayed with Naomi and would not leave her. So there's definitely a contrast that was meant to be shown. And what we're seeing is Ruth's loving resolve to stay with Naomi no matter what. She loves this woman so much, whatever hardships Naomi's going to face, I am going to face it with her. And she has this loving resolve that she will not compromise. In fact, she says in chapter 1, verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. In fact, she says, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. That's a daughter to a mother-in-law, not a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband. And that is an utter resolve to be with this woman, even to the point of rejecting her past, rejecting her identification with the Moabites, your people are my people, and your God is my God. That really is a statement of salvation, isn't it? When we receive the Lord into our life, we're saying, you now are my God. But the point is, this is a resolve that Ruth makes and thus goes back with Naomi to a foreign people where she is now a foreigner with a mother-in-law to now deal with this famine that has been existing in the land of Israel where things have been so bad. When you look at chapter 2, we have another interesting segment of Ruth's life. If the first chapter is sort of her resolve not to leave Naomi, here she makes a loving request. In fact, there are two loving requests that will come up in in, um, Ruth's life. Here she comes back, and now they are reduced to utter poverty. The Mosaic Law had a way to deal with poverty. And that was that in the, in the Mosaic Law, all harvesters were limited to what they could harvest on their farm. So if you owned some property and you were harvesting grain, this is occurring near the barley season. Barley, by the way, is harvested during the springtime, and that's why the book of Ruth is read during Passover, which occurs during uh, the spring. So they're harvesting barley, as the text tells us. And as they're harvesting barley, the, the farmer and his workers have to leave the four corners of the field untouched. And 
when they go through the field to harvest whatever grain or wheat or product they have, they can only go over the field once. If they miss something along the way, they cannot go back to pick it up. Why? So that those who are poor can wander into the four corners. They don't have to go wandering deep into the field, but they can just stay on the outskirts, on the perimeter, the four corners, and there should be some grain there for them to harvest. And if they need to go into the harvest field, they shouldn't have to be plucking it up for themselves and spending a lot of time in there. They can get in. Whatever is left, they can take, and they can go out. It was a way of, of retaining their dignity and their sense of community and also to provide for them. So Ruth comes to this field. Now, not all Israelites were very righteous about this. I mean, this is what the law says, but that doesn't mean this is what people did. And so what you find Ruth doing is she goes to the foreman of the owner of the farm, who we'll meet in a little while. He's introduced to us the first verse of chapter 2, which is Boaz. And she goes to the foreman and she says, would it be okay if I glean in the field? Well, it shouldn't be something she has to ask about, but she does because not all the Israelites necessarily were obeying this law and just making this provision. So she goes to the foreman and she says, would it be okay? Evidently, he says yes, because later when Boaz comes, he asks, who is this woman who's gleaning in the field? And the foreman says, well, this is a woman, she's a Moabitess, she's come home with Naomi, and she asked if she could glean in the field, and so here she is gleaning in the field. Boaz goes up to Ruth and says to her, don't go into any other field. You are to stay here. This is a very righteous man. Any other farmer would say, you know, why don't you like spread it around? Go to that guy tomorrow and this guy here because you're taking all my stuff. But no, Boaz says, you don't go anywhere else. You stay right here. And another thing, he says to his workers, you get some water for her. She's been working here all day, the foreman said. So she's not going to be able to draw water from herself. She's going to lose time. So she's been working hard. And he says, make sure that she has water to drink. And another thing, he says, to the, to the workers. Not only that, I want you to deliberately pluck some of the grain, bundle it up, and leave it there for her to take. So now he's telling his workers, I want you to work for her too. And she's a Moabitess, remember. So Boaz is a really neat guy. And then he tells her, you can eat some of the bread and vinegar too if you get hungry. So please help yourself to my property. Now, he was very uh, responsive to um, Ruth, because she asked a loving request, right? She didn't just come in, barge in, do her thing. She acted with great dignity and character when she says to the foreman, look, I know according to your law, it's not my law, to your law, you have an obligation to let these things lie so I can reap. But no, she says, would it be okay if I do this? And the foreman says, yes, probably reluctantly, but Boaz says, no, this is fine. Now, here's another interesting thing. The book of Ruth is found after the book of Judges because it takes place in the period of the Judges. But, you know, in the Jewish Bible, it's not after the book of Judges. In the Jewish Bible, it is after the book of Proverbs. So you say, well, why after the book of Proverbs? Well, the last proverb, Proverb 31, has verses 10 through 31, which is the proverb of the virtuous woman, right? And in that proverb... 
And it's uniquely crafted because it's an acrostic proverb. That is to say, each consecutive verse starts with a consecutive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So this proverb is a special proverb that the writer, Solomon, wants us to particularly know because he designed it differently from all the other proverbs. But here's another neat thing. The very first section, verse 10, of the virtuous woman uh, proverb uses the phrase virtuous woman. It's only found in one other place in all the Bible. And do you know what book it's found in? The book of Ruth. And it's used of Ruth in chapter 3, verse 11, where Boaz says, we all know you are a virtuous woman. So the one place that it's used and the one example we have is Ruth. And so because of that, and by the way, another interesting thing is the last verse in Proverbs 31 says that she sits in the gate with the elders. Well, when you get to Ruth chapter 4, you read Boaz sits in the gate with the elders when he requests to be married to Ruth and to inherit uh, Elimelech's property. But that same word at the end of Proverbs 31, is also found in Ruth. So it's sort of like these two Ruth words sandwich the proverb, verse 10 and verse 31. So in the Jewish Bible, they put it after the book of Proverbs so that you read of the virtuous woman, and now they're telling you, and here's one who was that virtuous woman, and you read about the book of Ruth. I think that's kind of pretty cool. And so when Ruth is resolved, the loving, loving resolve, I'm not leaving Naomi, And then she has a loving request. Could I glean in your field? But her second loving request is found in chapter 3. Because later, Naomi tells Ruth, do you know Boaz is a kinsman of our family? He is related to Elimelech, my husband. That means he has the privilege, the honor, the right to redeem us from our condition. How would he do that? Number one, he would purchase Elimelech's property. And he could work it. See, the girls can't work the property. Naomi and Ruth. They can't work it. They're too weak. They're too poor. And uh, they're not able to. So what would happen is a relative of Elimelech would purchase it. And he can now work the farm. But working the farm means whatever comes from that farm belongs to Naomi. Because he's doing it for his relative Elimelech. And along with that means he would have to assume Ruth as his wife. And to raise up a descendant through her so as to retain the property in the family. And once a child is born and grows up, he inherits that that farm. So that means the relative doesn't gain anything. You don't gain anything by doing that. You may gain property for a time, but ultimately that property is going to go to whoever, whatever child is born to that family. And so it is a sacrifice that you make. So Naomi says to Ruth, you know, Boaz is a kinsman. And according to the Mosaic law, he could redeem the property. He could marry you. He could have a child and we could retain the farm and the property in the family and we'd be taken care of. So when you see him next, you are to spend time with him and ask him if he would serve us in this capacity. 
So that evening, while Boaz has rested after a day out in the field in the threshing floor, she comes in among where he is lying, after he has eaten, after he has uh, drank, and he's relaxed and he's fallen asleep. She comes in in the middle of the night, he realizes there's someone lying at my feet. And so he says, whoa, what's going on? And she says, I am Ruth. And I've come and I've been here because she doesn't want anyone to see her speak to Boaz about this because she knows Boaz is a righteous man. And Boaz might want to refuse this. And if he does, that's not a good thing, but she doesn't want to embarrass him in failing to fulfill his obligation. So she wants to come at night where he can, she can ask and he can respond however he might want to. Also, she doesn't want her to attract attention. She's a Moabitess after all. So she comes. And when he wakes up, she presents herself to him and tells her who she is and what relationship Boaz has, as she's aware. Boaz says, and responds in a loving response. He says, I am willing to serve as a kinsman redeemer. I will redeem you from this state that you are in. And I'm willing to make the sacrifice. However, he says, I'm not the nearest kinsman in the family. That is to say, Elimelech had a brother. And so the way that the law worked was, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, everybody with me now? Elimelech has a brother. So the first person whose responsibility is to fulfill this obligation is his oldest brother. If he had other brothers, it would go to the next brother, and the next brother, and the next brother, so on, until the youngest brother. Evidently, there was one brother. Because Boaz says there's a nearer kinsman And he has to have the first obligation. Evidently, Boaz may have been a nephew of Elimelech. But he's definitely an older man because he says to Ruth that you are a virtuous woman for one of the reasons is she doesn't go after a younger man. She's not interested in a younger man. She's happy with Boaz, who's an older man. And that is seen to her credit and to her character. So in chapter 4, Boaz goes to the gate of the city. He calls for ten elders. That's why, by the way, in the Jewish community, you have what's required for all services, a minion. That is, at least ten men need to be present for any kind of service or gathering. And it's taken from this passage in the book of Ruth. So there are ten men, elders of the city, and he wants them to serve as witnesses about this legal transaction that is about to occur. And so he gets Elimelech's brother. And he says to Elimelech, you know, Naomi has come back with Ruth. Naomi, your brother's wife. And she would like you to serve as a kinsman redeemer and purchase her property. At first, the man says, fine, I'll be happy to purchase it. He figures she's an older woman, there's not going to be any descendants. And so that being the case, He could purchase the property. He only has to feed one person. So he intends to gain financially by this and he intends to gain property for the rest of his family. Boaz says, okay, that's fine. Now, she also came back with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. 
and she you must marry. Now that means he's going to need to have a child by her, for her, who would stand to inherit the property. With that, he says, I cannot compromise my property, because he now knows he's going to have to give out more than he thought he would get by taking care of this family and then losing everything to a child that would be born. So he says to Boaz, I can't redeem Naomi. Now that is a terrible, terrible thing because that is a family member reneging on his responsibility to his brother. And that's why in the book of Ruth, the Hebrew phrase is very clear that when Boaz calls the brother, he calls him, or at least the writer refers to him as Mr. So-and-so, which is a way of not letting you know his name so that he would not be known in later generations, and thus he has a bad reputation as a man who does not fulfill his responsibilities. So the writer doesn't want to embarrass him, so we don't know his name. In the New International it says, and there was a man, or something like that. Uh, But it literally is Mr. So-and-so. And so he refuses, so Boaz says, well, I then will redeem her. And Boaz then does purchase the property, giving Naomi some money, and then he does marry Ruth, and the book closes with the genealogy of Ruth, So now, or the genealogy of Boaz. And it leads from, from Perez, goes all the way back, but from Boaz, they have a son named Obed, and Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has a son named David. They become the great-grandparents of King David. Now, how mind-boggling is that, you know? This Moabitess woman, because of her loyalty to her mother-in-law, becomes an heir, an ancestor, to the very Messiah of Israel himself and the most important king of Israel, King David. Just mind-boggling, because it concludes with what I would call love's reward, in which, because Ruth was so faithful through all this time, the end of the story is she becomes a wife and she becomes a mother. A mother, ultimately, of the most important child who will ever be lived, namely the Lord Jesus, right? And so what an incredible turn of circumstances as the sovereign Lord, you know, turns things around. What great uh, lessons to learn in here about how love operates. It resolves to be faithful, as in the case of Ruth to Naomi. It makes loving, meaningful, significant requests. Can I glean in your property? Would you serve to redeem me? It has a loving response. Yes, I am with you. It's like in 1 Corinthians 13, love believes all things. You know, Yes, I will do this for you. And it concludes with a great reward where there is a marriage, and there is a child, right? Well, and that makes me think, as I just finalize this, of the love Jesus had for his mother. Because, and you have the same thing working out. Think about this. As the Lord says to his mother and to all his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Think about that as a loving resolve on the Lord's part toward us. I mean, it's one thing for Ruth to 
have that kind of resolve toward her mother-in-law. It's another thing for the God of the universe to have that kind of resolve toward us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when you think about who we are, you know, I was showing my students in school this week, uh, I had these photographs taken from the Hubble Space Telescope, right, which is like its 20th anniversary or something like that. And one of its... Uh, one of the shots was of the Milky Way. I mean, they're all kind of neat shots. This is of the Milky Way. And, you know, it's just incredible expanse of space and stars, right? And then on it was this little red circle. And that red circle that you could barely see inside was a little white dot, smaller than a period at the end of a sentence. That was our sun, in the Milky Way, which means you can't even see our planet, which means you can't even see our continents, which means you can't even see us on it. We are smaller than a proton or any of those crazy atomic nuclear particles, whatever they are that are spinning around atoms. We are smaller than that, and that would be us collectively. Imagine how small you are in the universe. My students are like going, whoa, whoa, Mr. D, relax. You know, I mean, it's just a photograph, you know. But that's where my mind went. And I said, now listen to this. In all of space, God's love and resolve for us was such that he came to that invisible speck-like particle that you can't see for specks that are even smaller than that who are you and I. And if you were the only one which would be smaller than smallest of smallest, he would still have come for you. That is just blows me away to think that that is how God so loves you and me. Because he's resolved to never leave us nor forsake us. And it just, it's just amazing to think about it that way when you see a photograph like that. But not only is the Lord Jesus resolved, he also makes what I would say loving request from the cross, right? There's his mother, seeing him in all of his agony and suffering. Can I even begin to comprehend that one? But there she is, faithful to the end. And what does Jesus, I don't know, maybe I'm stretching it by saying request, but he says to his mother, Mother, behold your son. And to John, he says, behold your mother. I don't know if he's a request, but in there is the instruction, take care of my mother. Mother, entrust yourself to my beloved disciple. And so there's this loving request of a son in behalf of his mother, right? And there's a loving response because the Bible says, John chapter 19, check it out, from that day forward, John took Mary into his home and took care of her the rest of her life. Tradition is that he went on to pastor in Ephesus, off the coast of which is the Isle of Patmos, where he writes the book of Revelation from, or at least the the, uh, colony that he is sent as a prisoner for his faith in Christ by the Romans. But um, tradition is that that's where he brought Mary with her and was buried. 
That's tradition. Could be that she died in Israel, and then he left, not leaving until she died, to go to, uh, to Ephesus. Not really sure, but the text is clear. From that, and he dies by 95, right? So it has to be somewhere uh, close to when he's writing this gospel. But um, his uh, response is yes. And from that moment, she is his son. And this loving reward, well, John goes down in history as the truly beloved disciple. Of all the disciples, he's the one that is seen as the beloved, most loved by the Lord Jesus, most deeply loved. I mean, what does it mean to be called the beloved disciple? It meant John that Jesus had a connection with John unlike others. Why does he entrust his mother to John and not Peter or Thomas or Matthew? All were men of God that God used wonderfully, but no, the Lord Jesus looks at John, says, you're the one. Of course, John is still there. And so what a neat, neat kind of parallel in terms of Mother's Day and individuals in relation to their mothers and the love that they showed uh, toward both. And here we are, you know, that we can sort of mimic that with our own mothers, you know, but God would want us to respond to him as a loving father is toward us and as a loving God. He so loved the world that he gave his son for us. And I pray we would embrace this one who gives us life and hope. And I love these hymns that Valerie led us in, you know. Uh, He loves us and desires us. So let's come to him. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Gary of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. I hope it was a blessing and encouragement to you. Our church, New Hope Chapel, is located in Arnold, Maryland, just outside of Annapolis. So if you're ever visiting in our area, please come by, say hello, and visit with us. We'd love to have you. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org on the web. So we hope to see you soon. God bless.